Hi there everyone, just before we start today's show, I wanted to let you know that we're dubbing this month of Bigger Questions as Justice Month. Over four weeks, we're asking a number of big questions about several contemporary social justice issues. Last week, we kicked off and met St. Judy Wood and her work as an advocate for asylum seekers. Next week, we're off to the slums of Kenya, but this week we confront some big questions about the modern slavery movement. It's a great series, and I hope these shows really get you thinking about some of life's biggest questions. So welcome to the second of four conversations for Justice Month. This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, why confront slavery? Now, we usually record Bigger Questions before a live audience, but we weren't able to get our guest before an audience today. Now, we also want to acknowledge that today's conversation will cover some disturbing areas as we consider the slave trade in the world today. We're asking this big question to Investigator V, a human trafficking investigator with the International Justice Mission, an organisation fighting to end slavery in the world today. V is an experienced undercover investigator, having previously worked with the US Marines and in police anti-trafficking operations, and he joins me now, Investigator V... Welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, you work for the International Justice Mission. Now, the International Justice Mission is different to the Justice League, isn't it? The, the League of Superheroes, in, including Batman, Wonder Woman, intend on bringing justice to the world? Yes, it is. Sometimes I wished I was one of those people. <laughs> right. You were a superhero, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you, you wish you had a superpower, perhaps? Absolutely. That yeah. would be helpful. Yeah. So what exactly does the International Justice Mission do, and what, what superpower would help you in your job? Wow, a bunch of them. But International Justice Mission really seeks to uh, look for, find and those who are held in slavery, yeah. held in oppression, held in abuse, held in violent situations yep. in countries and environments around the world, and they have no hope or way or resources of their own of getting out. Right. And our mission is to go and find them mm-hmm. and provide rescue and protection for them and help change their public justice systems transform them so they begin to work for those people. Okay, right. So really you're trying to ab- well, advocate for the end of slavery, perhaps. Absolutely. Today. That's really yes. the, the, end, the end game, so yeah. to speak. Um, yes. Yes. Well, we can talk a bit more about that, but we do like to kick off bigger questions with a couple of smaller questions, just to get everyone thinking a bit. Now, we realise that slavery is no laughing matter, but I do have a smaller question for you today, V. Uh, it's about the abolition of slavery. Yes. Okay. So there's just one smaller question, and it's multiple choice, okay? Okay. Okay, the, in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act was passed by the UK Parliament, which abolished slavery in the British Empire. Now, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, how many slaves were freed that year with the passing of the legislation? Was it A, 1,000? Slavery was a pretty minor issue at the time. Was it B, 40,000? A decent number of slaves were emancipated. Was it C, 800,000? People were freed. Or was it D, 40 million people? It was a massive problem and it changed the world. So what do you reckon? I'm going to go a simple guess, but I'm going to say C. C. Well, that's a good one to go. You know your slavery. <laughs> that's the right answer. Well done. Yes. I mean, 800,000, that's a lot of people to be yes. freed from slavery. Um, now, but you mentioned that there's slavery still today because there's an assumption that after the, this Slavery Act in 1833 that slavery was abolished in the world and that there's no slavery at all today. But that's not what you observe? That's not what's, that's, that's not the case? That's absolutely not the case. I wouldn't have believed it until I got involved in this work. Really? You didn't think that there was a problem with slavery in the world? I did not. I didn't even see it, didn't think about it, until yeah. uh, I was called out of the blue yeah. by an IGM recruiter. said, we have all these millions of slaves, and I actually outwardly said, no, we don't. <laughs> right, yeah. 
Because I, I mean, I hadn't seen them. It was it was a shock to me. Well, that's right. Because in the nineteenth century, uh, the, the the perception is that slavery was abolished. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what the history books told me. Yeah. So then, what's the reality then? How many slaves are there in the world? Uh, there's well, there's multiple studies, and uh, you can pick any one of them. But there's several that show that there's probably more than forty million. More than forty million people in in an age where slavery is supposedly abolished. Yes, it's unbelievable. So how can this be then? Well, because evil exists. Yeah. And um, People with power mm-hmm. and people uh, in position to abuse other people use their power and their authority um, to take advantage of others and gain money and, and uh, other things. Mm. Well, what are the circumstances then that lead someone to utilize their power to turn someone into a slave? Well, I mean, uh, poverty has a lot to do with it. It's not everything, but it has a lot to do with it. We have seven and a half billion people on the planet. Yep. And, uh, again, the studies show that over two-thirds of them are poor. And because they're poor, they are vulnerable. And really, vulnerability is the key. Yeah. Um, so there's so many vulnerable people there, they're just easy to take advantage of. It's easy to live in a different country and find workers that you can abuse and pay very little or nothing at all and make a lot of money. Uh, and they prey upon those people because they are know they are easier to get into the work, they're easier to con, they're easier to lie to, and they're easier to control. So what sort of lies do they say? What, what do they offer that, to, that cons people? Well, many times it, it starts out with them coming saying, look, you live in a poor village and uh, you're starving to death. Let me take your children into the city. I can put them to work and they'll send you money every month. Yeah. And, you know, they're so poor and they're so hungry and there's such need that they want to believe it. Yeah. And so they do. And their kids go. And, and what happens to the kids? Well, many times they're never heard from again. Right. And they get they put into... They don't send the money? The money doesn't uh, come? Usually never. Hardly ever. Right. Um, they pay them right there often. They say, I'll give you 200 Australian dollars now, or American dollars, or whatever, and then they'll send more. And that's how it starts. Because of the money, too, they are so want to believe it. Well, he's showing us money. It's got to be true. Yeah. Um, that's how it starts. So that's typically. how it starts. So it's obviously poor people in desperate need. Yes. Um, so what do they do? What do they go to do in the in the cities? Well, there's uh, sex trafficking. You know, there's slave labor. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, manipulation and abuse in rice mills, rock quarries, um, brick factories. Uh, they typically they will tell them they'll take them for hotel work. Yeah. But they literally are taking them into prostitution and forcing them to be sex workers right. for women and for others uh, in industry. Uh, like the boys down in Ghana on Lake Volta, yeah. uh, traffic them into a, a fishing industry. That's yeah. you know they pay them nothing. Yeah, most of them are starving. So that's the circumstances that make someone a slave. Then that these kids or these people who have been taken, they really have just no control over their life. No, none. Yes, yeah, we've rescued uh, entire families in rock quarries who have been there for years. Yeah, and have no way to get out because the powerful owners of the people and of the businesses. They have friends in the police, in the government, in the community. So there's no one for these people to run to. Yeah. They have no resources, no help, nowhere to turn. Yeah. So they're in a psychological breaking down process that happens in slavery. They eventually give up fighting it and just try and survive. Yeah. Wow. That's I mean that's pretty confronting sort of well, yeah, situation. Evil. But then this is the reality in our world for, for millions of people. It is a reality right now as we sit here. There are people, real people you know, with real lives in that situation. Mm. So when the parents sort of offer their children up for this, do you think they get an inkling that something's wrong or are they just so desperate that they just want the want the, want the cash? It's both. I've seen both. I've seen parents who uh, actually know full well what's happening, but they sell their children anyway. We know that happens. It's, yeah. it's hard for us to believe it does, but it does. Wow. We also know that those are just, uh, there are some who 
don't understand but think it may be right, and so they do it. Yeah. How can you appreciate what goes on with the parents there, selling, willingly selling their children, knowing that they're going to cause suffering to their children? Well, I'll tell you, uh, evil is at work in a lot of ways and uh, destroying lives in a, in a multifaceted approach. So, some of these families, you know, we live in a very comfortable environment where law enforcement, if, if we dial an emergency number, someone's going to come. Someone will be here probably within minutes. Yeah. But these places, that doesn't exist. Some of these villages where the predators go and buy these children, there's no police or authorities for three or four hours away. Yeah. And even then, because they're poor, because they're lower caste people, the police simply don't want to risk their lives or the government, it's not worth it. So they have no, no one to call. So there's really no hope for these, these people in many cases. Without outside help. Yeah. Yes. So then what's the life then of uh, someone in slavery? What's sort of the average life like? It quickly deteriorates rapidly into kind of a, a hopeless mode of just existing. And I haven't had to experience that too much, so, or at all really, like they have. So it's even hard for me to put into words, but imagine mm. having no purpose, no way out, no hope, and you're just trying to exist. Mm. And when you talk to them, when you see them face to face, you'll know it because they don't even look at you many times. Mm. They'll just stare into space. Mm. And sometimes for the, some of the young girls who are stuck in sex trafficking, for example, um, there is a very definite psychological battle that takes place. And at a certain point, many of them give up. Many of them just surrender. What do you mean um, by that? Does that mean they, well, they commit when, suicide? Or? Sometimes they do, and sometimes they cut themselves. Uh, sometimes it, it, it just gets very, very bad. Um, you know, there's this process that takes place when they're first brought into that. They, they're in horror. And for them, it's, they're in this shock. And so the brothel managers, the slave owners, often will just violently abuse them to help break them down and torture them. Yeah. Um, and the whole time they're telling them, look it, we bought you. Your family sold you to us. No man will want to marry you, and no one is coming for you. And they tell them that over and over every day until they, they do give up. They do believe it. Police come in in some of these countries and abuse them. Mm. Authorities come in and abuse them. They try and run away, and other men or, or women in power bring them back and mm. get paid for it. And imagine that. Where would you turn to? Who oh, would you go so you to? You, you trust, trust no one. You can't trust anyone. Yeah. So it sounds like it's deeply dehumanizing. The whole Absolutely, experience. yeah. They're, they are not considered as human. They're considered like products, like assets. Yeah. So then you then do confront this slavery or the slave trade in your job with International Justice Mission. So what do you specifically do? Well, I'm in a position in the investigations field, and I train and mentor and lead teams of investigators of national staff within each country that we operate in to go out and find the victims, find the people held in this oppression. Mm. And it's a bit tricky work. It's a bit yeah. risky. But they're trained to do that and to look for them. They're, they're trained to look at body language and understand a young girl or a young boy who's in a hopeless situation and looks like they, uh, they've just given up. Mm. And then we, we find and we gather enough information. At the same time, I build relationships. We build relationships with high-ranking officials, police officials, government officials, courts, so that we can organize a rescue. Uh, we'd love to charge in there and grab them ourselves. Yeah, but you, you, you're tempted to do that? <laughs> oh, yeah, I tell you, the thought's gone over my mind many times. If I'm being honest, uh, I would love it because there's times it just makes you angry. You want to grab a couple guys and go in there and take them. Yeah. But that's not going to solve the problem. That's just going to forbid us from doing any further work. And so we have to organize these things, and we have to uh, have the police involved yeah. so we can arrest the traffickers and put them in prisons because that's the only thing that will stop them. 
Yeah. You can't buy these girls and, and think that's going to help. That will not stop it. That will reward the abuse. Mm. But you mentioned before sometimes that the officials, though, are complicit in the trafficking process, so to speak. So, so how do you work with the processes or the legal processes to actually ensure that sort of justice is done? Yeah, I'll tell you, sometimes you have to identify, sometimes it's corruption, sometimes it's, it's a lack of will, sometimes it's lack of resources, sometimes it's lack of training, and sometimes it's all of those. But there is a definite way of dealing with them all. Many times we just have to show them that it can be done. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen them, things that police, that government, that citizens in the community said will never happen. It's impossible. Yeah, I've seen it happen when we work very, very hard, even with all the risk and the cost, and we make it happen. Now they're excited about it. Right. Um, I've had police tell me that we will never find certain people that we were looking for, and we found them. And um, so we just have to a lot of times just demonstrate that they can do it. Mm. They, it is possible. So then without sort of revealing your secrets, so to speak, yeah. so what, what, what do you do as an investigator? Like how do you actually uh, find these people? Well, the essence of this work really is comes from an undercover perspective. You know, you, you can't go into darkness and, and as a light and think that people are not going to look at you and recognize you. Mm. That's an, another challenge that's difficult. You have to walk, talk, and act like you're there for the same reason as everybody else. You have to have this dual mindset. Because at the same time, we have to have people who have the right heart, mm. who have integrity, and who want to do the right thing. And it is a battle. Um, but that's, that's the essence of the work. You have to infiltrate the darkness, the, yeah. the evil, the brothels, the rock quarries. You have to act like a customer who wants to buy people. Yeah. Sometimes you have to is, talk that talk. Is that hard? Oh, it is extremely hard, especially when you're a person, a young man or young woman that doesn't stand for that in the deepest part of your heart, and that, that you're against it, and that you hate bullies, and you hate these kind of people. I mean, uh, it doesn't come naturally. Yeah. It's a challenge. Yeah, yeah. So what are the particular dangers then that you face? Is it dangerous? Uh, yes, it's dangerous. It is risky. Uh, we have an enemy. You know, the, the, the perpetrators, uh, they don't like what we do. No. Um, we've had people killed. We've had people beaten up. We've had all kinds of things happen. And here's the thing I will tell you, that we were not uh, reckless. We don't just charge in and, and grab people. We plan very well. So, so you're not like a vigilante game, no. sort of going in trying to... No, to, it's not like movies like Taken. Like, <laughs> not like the Justice League, yeah, so to speak. Exactly. I wish it was sometimes, <laughs> but that's not the way it is. We plan as, as carefully and as cautiously as we can, um, and we put contingency plans in place. But at the end of the day, you have to go to where they are. That's the thing. You can't talk about it and plan about it and hope someone else will do it. Mm. The only way for us to go into that darkness and evil and change it is to go in there, to be there, to mm. stand beside them, to find them. Yeah. Well, now, you've previously worked with the U.S. military and in anti-drug trafficking operations with the U.S. police. Is yes. this more or less dangerous than that? So, uh, most of the time, I feel like it's more dangerous. Yeah? Because, you know, when I worked with the police and the government, I had a gun. Yeah. I had tools. I had radios, I had communications, I had resources, I had authority. Many times we have none of that where we're working, where we're operating. So you're, you're really vulnerable. We are vulnerable, uh, almost as vulnerable as some of the people we're trying to rescue, but we have some tools. Yes. Right. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. But so, so have you been threatened? Like, is that, is that a. Oh, yes. Yeah. Many times. And there's places that uh, I can't go back to. 
because uh, we, we so try. They know, they know you. Yes, we try and stay undercover and hidden as much as possible because we want to continue to do the work. We want to continue to find those in need. And so, if we were to like all go in with the police and everybody knows who we are, the next time we come back to look for people, they would know who we are. Mm. But sometimes the cases are so big and so significant, hundreds of lives are are at stake that you just have to spend that resource to yeah. do it. Yeah. And so those are the places that typically I won't go back to. So can you tell us maybe a story or of someone who's been you've been involved in rescuing from slavery? Yeah, I can tell you hundreds of stories. Sure. Um, I probably don't have time for all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can tell you of a young girl we we found a, a very large brothel with about 30 uh 30 girls in it in India. And we worked very hard with the police, and it was a tremendous struggle. The police didn't want to go get these girls. They felt they were worth nothing. But a particular 16-year-old girl told us she was going to kill herself unless she got out. She didn't know who we were. We yeah. don't tell them who we are. No, no. But she was just telling our our undercover operative that uh, if you want to see me again, do it soon because I don't think I can take this anymore. I'm going to take my life. So the police initially didn't want to go. Uh, but eventually I convinced them by building higher-level relationships to go there, and they did. And information was leaked because of corruption, and everyone was gone. So that's devastating to us. Yeah, yeah. It's hard because we get to know these girls, and we're face-to-face with them. Well, then after a while, they came back, and so we did it again. They were gone again, and we're trying to figure out where the corruption is coming from, where the leak. Because you know what happens? Someone who is corrupt finds out that we're going to get them, and they'll call the brothel manager and say, hey, for $40, I'll give you some information that's valuable. Yeah. So for $40, you know, 30 girls don't get found. Yeah. Um, but we went back six times, six times, and they kept moving them around. And finally, uh, we just decided, look, we're not going to give up. And we're going to keep, we told them, we're going to keep coming back. And we're going to keep coming back. And we're going to keep coming back. So, and, we, so were you threatened? Oh, yes, many times. Many times. And at a certain point in all of that, they began to know who I was. Yeah. And did you think they're perhaps giving up at this point? They were hoping we would give up. The, the more we did it, the more they elevated the threats until they're, they're thinking at some point, these guys are going to go away. And one of the things in this work I know that's very important is that two things, that we show up, number one, and number two is that we don't give up. And that's very important because there's an enemy that wants us to go away that wants us to say it's too dangerous, it's too hard, mm. it's too risky. But we didn't. And we don't, and we know not to listen to that voice. And we eventually rescued that girl because I think we just wore down the perpetrators. Um, and that person is now in prison in India that wow. trafficked them. So that's that's one that's, of hundreds of stories I could tell you. I suppose that's that's justice, then I suppose, isn't it? That's it is the, that's the goal. It's the international justice yeah. mission. And you know what else it does? It it doesn't just rescue that girl, which is superb by any means. But it, there's other girls that saw that in other mm. brothels, and they now have. They've told us this. They now have some hope that someone is looking for them, and now they're trying to survive long enough to get rescued instead of kill themselves with no hope. Mm. So the work is not just about the rescue. It is, but it's also about Providing hope. hope. Yeah, yeah. So, Investigator V, this sounds very dangerous, difficult, uh, hard work. It's awful work in some respects in confronting slavery today. So what makes you want to do it? Do you just like a, a fight? That's a great question. That's a question I asked before I even took the job. Why, yeah. did, why would I want to do that? And I couldn't understand. It is dark. It is ugly. It is does keep you awake sometimes at night. But I will tell you, in doing the work, there is a purpose and a joy actually behind all of that. Yeah, That's, It's hard to see up front. You look at it, and oh, what an ugly environment. Who wants to go do that? 
But when you are able to save a life, literally, mm. someone who's ready to kill themselves, they're living in such a nightmare, and you begin to see them change and grow because it does take time. They've been lied to their entire lives. Sometimes it takes years, sometimes months. But when you see that begin to change, you know that the purpose. And there's a joy that can't be replaced with money or fame or possessions or anything else you want. Um, the three years I was in Calcutta, India, where I started, we re- rescued 163 girls. Mm-hmm. And the three youngest were five years old. Goodness. Those were the hardest three years of my life. And I was in the Marines and undercover drug enforcement and all that. Those three years were such a tremendous challenge, way outside of my comfort zone. But honestly, they were the best three years of my career, of my life. And I wouldn't change them for, for anything. Mm. Um, it's powerful. It's hard to see, but it's there nonetheless. Yeah. And it's real. It's purposeful. Mm. Uh, you know, many things we do today are just superficial, but this is real. You're changing a life. So what motivates you then to think that saving a life's worthwhile? Well, because when you sit down and think about what's of value to you, it's easy to think that possessions are a nice new car, a nice home, food, money, having fun. But if you really sit down and think it through, people are really what's important. Mm. And that's hard to even admit sometimes, but it's true. Mm. And it also, in my belief, in my faith, um, just mimics what God says. Mm. God's so, passion so th- is for people. So this is connected in some way to your, your faith then? Absolutely. And I, I didn't start out thinking this way. Mm. It was this work really that helped me come to that conclusion. What, what am I living for? Am I living to get a retirement? You know, when I retired, I was thinking of playing golf and having fun. <laughs> Not going Honestly, to isn't that, brothels in isn't India. that what the world tells you retirement's all about? Yeah. And so this challenge came and I thought, well, play golf, have fun, or go to a, a community that's completely difficult and different from what I'm used to. I didn't see the benefit of it, but I felt this was an opportunity that God was bringing to me to do something purposeful and meaningful in my life and saving others. And so I did it, and then I, I'm experiencing and seeing the joy that comes from mm. it. Because International Justice Mission does actually derive inspiration and motivation from the Bible, particularly from the Old Testament yeah. uh, book of Isaiah, because in Isaiah 117, uh, it says, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. So, Investigator V, how have you seen this impact and motivate the work of International Justice Mission in your own personal work? Well, it looks like it wouldn't, but it actually does. Yeah. You know, in the world, there's problems. There's always been problems. There's always going to be problems. And I found myself asking God, what, why don't you just come down and fix all this? I mean, yeah. Does God have the power? If you believe in God at all, you've got to believe he has the power to do that. So why doesn't that happen? Because he wants to use us. He wants to use people to fix the problems. And I think he doesn't tell us up front, you're going to experience the greatest joy in this world. He wants you to be faithful and to show up and do it and then give you the joy and the hope and the purpose that comes from it. Mm. Um, and later on in Isaiah, if you read on through there to Isaiah 58, it, it does actually tell you that you will experience a joy beyond anything else. Mm. So instead of seeking justice and defending the, the, the case for the vulnerable, etc., that it brings joy to you? Absolutely. Um, it brings joy. Uh, and it, I, w- w- Joy is almost an overused term. Yeah. I'm not talking it brings me fun. It brings me a happiness. great night. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not like going out with your friends. Man, that was so much fun. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a joy where you take a deep breath and you go, man, this meant something that you'll never forget. Mm. Um, that's what joy it is. Because this passage does say in, the, in Isaiah, learn to do 
right, seek justice, take up the cause of the fatherless uh, and the, the widows, so the vulnerable people, yeah. etc. Uh, so do you see what you're doing in, in some ways mirroring this? I see it as, as a constant effort leaning into it and trying to mirror. I'm glad it says learn to do right. Yes. Because it, it really is a growing learning process for me. It has been. I've been in it 12 years and I'm still learning and I'm still in awe sometimes of the things that I see happen. Yeah. So do you think it's then surprising or appropriate that the, the, the Bible seems to motivate or even advocate for a, a modern anti-slavery movement? Yeah. I think the Bible is giving us some insight. I think it's given us some key. I think it's given us a hidden gem yeah. uh, to look for. And when you do that, uh, you'll find out and you'll see. Saving a life is worth it. Now, some critics of the Christian faith have dismissed the Bible because they say that the Bible actually condones slavery and encourages it. What do you make of that? How do you wrestle with that particular that challenge in your job? No, that's a complete uh, misunderstanding of God's Word. Yeah. And uh, that's reading something and then running with it instead of understanding it. You know, I could take some things we said today completely out of context and make you look like a bad person. The things that, right? You know <laughs> yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. So, yes. uh, yeah, sometimes I've read things in the Bible that I say, this just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. And I would challenge people, when you come across stuff like that, don't just dismiss it. Figure it out. Mm. Read the context. Read what's around it. Because God has a character, and God's character doesn't lie. Mm. There's one justice. There's one reality. There's one truth. Uh, we can change it and call it other things, but ultimately, there's one reality. And you think freeing people from slavery is completely in line with his character? Yes, I do. Yeah. God is a God of passion for people. And God is, he says that, he's the God of justice. Mm. And that's why he holds us accountable. Yeah. So then does your Christian faith impact how you see those you're rescuing in slavery? Yes. Yeah, in what way? Well, that I've grown to love people a lot more. As a, as a law enforcement officer, if I'm being honest, you really... <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't love people as a police officer. Uh, so that's much. true. I, I learned to not like people. I learned to distrust people. Everyone's <laughs> lying to me. Everyone's against me just about this day and age. And so you, you develop this whole mental attitude. And, and now in this work, I really see people who just need help. And uh, it's changed my whole worldview of everyone. Um, mm. in a way that I now, I now sense and understand a little closer, a little more of God's passion for people. Mm. I can see it, and I can feel it, and I can understand it. And I did to a certain extent when I was in law enforcement, but now you're drawn into so much of this inner battle of good and evil, of saving a life, that it just becomes much clearer to you. Mm. You've confronted the very worst of humanity. So what impacts that had on you? Has it, has it changed you much? Well, I think it's changed me in a good way. Mm -hmm. I think it's grown me. I think those were always there, and now I don't ignore it as much. It's gone from my head knowledge, from my logical side of my brain, and it's more of an issue of the heart for me, mm. that it means something to me now. Uh, it's not just information. You know, all the millions of slaves in the world is not just a number. It's a figure. I now see it as every one of those having a, a life, yeah. having a story, having a dream, every one of them worth fighting for. And so for me, it's, it's much more of just a problem of seeing it and even throwing money at it to one of, wow, I, that means something. Mm. And whether it's telling friends about it or talking about it or helping support it, it's something that I can't look away from anymore. I've got to turn and look at it because it is easy to look away from the problem and mm. ignore it. So Investigator V, why confront slavery? Because it's there. There's a purpose to it. And it's real. It's not just a philosophy. 
It's not just propaganda. It's not just a political theme. Mm. Uh, people every day, right now, this very minute, are in need of someone's help. Mm. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to this big question, why confront slavery? From Isaiah 1.17. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Investigator V. You're welcome. Hi, everyone. Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope today's show got you thinking. As I mentioned, it's Justice Month on Bigger Questions, and to continue the exploration of the big questions of seeking justice in our world today, you might be interested in a special event, The Edge, hosted by City Bible Forum on September 15th around Australia called Let Justice Roll Down. The speakers are Indigenous leader Brooke Prentice and historian Dr. John Dixon, and they'll be exploring the possibility of seeing justice in our lifetime. You can get more details and register at citybibleforum.org. Also a reminder that at 9pm on Monday nights, we share the latest Bigger Questions show as a Facebook premiere on the Bigger Questions Facebook page. So if you missed the broadcast or podcast, you can get another opportunity to engage with the big questions raised by the show. So like the Facebook page if you haven't already, and why not invite others to watch with you? Comment and ask your questions. And please share this show with someone you think might benefit from it, and let's get more people exploring the big questions of life. And finally, if you want to invest in bigger thinking, maybe you could support us on Patreon. We've had a number of new patrons join us recently, and we really appreciate their support. So even for as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions for all the details. Anyway, thanks again for listening. And remember to keep asking the bigger questions.